0: Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into the Gospel of John. (coughs) Father, um, we just come to you this morning and uh, and realize that life is important and life is short, and we don't want to waste the times that we meet together. We don't want to waste opportunities to worship you. We don't want to waste opportunities to connect with other believers and encourage one another. We don't want to waste our life in mediocrity just pray that you would wake us and stir us and, uh, and give us the eyes just to see all those little divine moments that, that are all around us. The people that are trying to bless us and we're not seeing it. The people that we could bless but we're not seeing it. The things that you're trying to say to us but we're not paying attention or praying. Just pray that you would stir us and wake us. And I, I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this morning... We're going to do something we haven't done in a long time, but we're just going to digest a big, massive chunk of Scripture. Um, so you can turn, if if you would, to John chapter 1, or you can uh, read along on the screen. But We're going to go from John 1, verse 15, all the way through John chapter 1, verse 34. And, and so we're just going to kind of read through this, and, and I'll try and make a couple comments as we go so that we're we're getting it, but um, let's go all the way through it, and then I've got a couple thoughts this morning. Starting in John 1, verse 15, it says this, John, now this is John the Baptist, John testifies concerning him, that is the Logos, because he hasn't yet named Jesus up to this point in the gospel, Um, the one that was with God and was God that has now come, and John testifies concerning him, and he cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, this is a culture where age and time sequence really matters. The eldest child was greater than the younger child, uh, children. And the person who was first is greater than the people who come after. And John is clearly John the writer of the gospel, and then John the Baptist are both, in some sense here, clearly denoting that Jesus is greater than, the, uh, than John the Baptist, and part of that greatness comes because he was before him. He was with the Father in the beginning, and now he's come. He doesn't come after John the Baptist. He was before him. And they, they take pains to kind of say that. In verse 16, it says this, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, it's the first time it's mentioned here in the Gospel of John, and it's only one other time that it is mentioned that Jesus' name is mentioned in this full kind of title way in the whole of the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ is mentioned here, and then again in John 17:3, where Jesus is praying, and he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you and know the Son that you sent, um, Jesus Christ. And so you kind of get this bookend where um, the writer, John, is saying this person, Jesus, is the Messiah. And, And the word Christ just literally means anointed one, and it's what they would use to translate kind of the Hebrew Messiah. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the one from God. And so this is the first time we see it in the Gospel of John, and he does it in contrast to Moses, not against Moses but in distinction against Moses. And why is that important? For the law, verse 17, again, was the law was given through Moses. If you'll just flip over to John 9, 28. This was kind of always the, the battle that Jesus fought. Moses was the guy, he was the authority. And so you see the Pharisees talking about this. And, um, And in verse 28, 920, it says, Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are his fellow, uh, this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. So you've you got to understand, Jesus came and there's already kind of an authority on the scene. And you know when you come into a situation where there's already been an authority figure, into a business where there's already been a great leader or a, a teacher before you that all the students liked, or you're a coach and you come on and the team already identifies with somebody else, and you come into that vacuum and they're looking at this person and they're not knowing you. And in this case, the leaders, the religious leaders that were supposed to follow Christ Kind of are like, man, we don't like change. We, this is safe, and we've kind of made our name on this thing. We follow Moses because we know that God spoke to him, and, and we're just going to kind of not really look into this whole thing of you because we don't want to submit to you. It's easier to submit to Moses, who's dead, than to you, who's like kind of right here with us. Submission's a hard thing. So, John here in chapter 1 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, going on, it says, no one has ever seen God. And this follows, and he makes allusion to Moses. He goes, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Now, Moses, remember, there was a time in Exodus uh, 33 where uh, God kind of tucks him away in the cleft of the rock and passes. and, And Moses, like, sees the backside of God but can't even see his face, isn't even allowed to see his face. And that's like the closest that any human um, came to really seeing the fullness of God. And so the writer John here is saying, Moses gave you the law, good. Jesus gave you grace and truth, better. And oh, by the way, nobody, not even Moses, saw God all the way, except Jesus, who is with the Father and has come from the Father. Now, if you remember, in um, this whole gospel, the thing that gets Jesus killed is blasphemy. The reason the Jewish leaders handed him up to the Romans and then the Romans put him to death and all this is because Jesus made himself of equal authority as God. It was blasphemous. You, a mere human, talk like you're on the, the level with God. And they eventually killed him for blasphemy. And here's John saying... Guess what? That's why they killed him, but it was true. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, Jesus Christ, it's a reference back, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. There's a parallelism there, and he just denotes Jesus again as actually being of God, being being God, and then coming down to earth. In verse 19, we see a big shift. This is the beginning of um, the gospel narrative of John. So you've had the whole introduction, and now we get to verse 19, and the writer here continues, and he says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Christ. And so they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? Because Elijah was taken up, and then the prophecies were that he would come again. And he was, um, John the Baptist, we find out later, really was that in that type. He was the forerunner to Jesus, that kind of figurative Elijah. But John here says, no, you don't get it. I'm not actually Elijah coming back. That's not who I am. Um, I'm not Elijah. And then they said, well, then are you the prophet? And this goes back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, someday there will be a prophet. And they said, well, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. And finally they said, who are you? You've got to remember, like, the guy's wearing... um, like animal skins from Banana Republic, and eating locusts. And he's like, you know, most preachers try and tiptoe around, preaching too hard right at you and, you know, and teaching you. And John the Baptist, like if there was ever a hellfire brimstone guy, like, I mean, so here's a guy in the skins eating locusts and just calling it out, right? Um, And so they're just trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord, Isaiah 40. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Well, then why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, not, not Elijah, nor the prophet? What gives you the authority to take people out into the river, cleanse them, proclaim that they are are being baptized for their sins and being absolved of their sins? What gives you that authority if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet? What are you doing there? And here's the funny part, because in verse 26, listen to what John says. He doesn't really answer the question. They say, what authority do you have? And he he doesn't answer. He says, "I I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, and he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He he doesn't talk about his authority. Like, I'm John the Baptist, man. Like, I have to wear these skins and eat these locusts. You know, (laughs) who are you to ask me who I am? Like, look what I'm going through. You know, like, he doesn't defend himself. You know how we would? You know, like, we don't like to be questioned. And John the Baptist knows his role, and he's not trying to defend himself or uphold himself. He doesn't even answer the question. He says, look, it's not about me. I'm doing this to get you ready for a guy who's going to come. I'm not even fit to take off his dirty sandals. I watched a documentary that's pretty killer, um, The Fog of War. It's like Robert McNamara looking back at his life. He was the the Secretary of Defense during Vietnam, the, the Kennedy and then Johnson administrations, and... The guy is an absolute genius, and he, and obviously has become wise through the years and stuff like that. So this whole documentary is him looking back. And there's one point where he's saying, you know, during his time as Secretary of Defense, he learned kind of this uh, this little habit, political habit, where he says, you know, what you what you do is you don't answer the question they ask, you answer the question you wish they had asked. So they showed like in the documentary like all these clips of reporters asking these questions. And he just doesn't even blink his eye. He just goes off on something totally different. And you're like, you know, but it sounds really good. So he just ignores the question and you know, talks about what he wants to talk about. And that's kind of what John the Baptist is doing here. He's like, you don't even know how to ask the right question here. It's not about me. Let me tell you who it is about. And the interesting thing is to to Levites and priests, he uses something here that really would have caught their attention. There's a... A rabbi that's like quoted around the time of Jesus, um, with a, a good Italian name, Joshua ben Levi, um, and uh, he's quoted around the time of Christ as saying, "Now, if for a disciple with its mas- with his, his or her, well, his master back then, uh, with a disciple with his master, it has to be you're obligated to treat that person um, as a slave would treat his master, all, also." So if you're a disciple with a teacher, with a master, you need to treat that person the same way a slave would have to treat his um, or her master. And up to the point of you don't have to take off their sandals. What's going on here? Look, that's the teacher. You follow them. You do what they say. You're obedient. You're humbled and, and submitted. And you just follow along up to the point of you don't have to take off their sandals. You know, dusty feet on those roads, sandals, all that kind of stuff. And so you need to really follow, but that's the one thing you don't have to do. And what does John say here, which is amazing? He says, "Um, this person coming who's after me, it's not only taking off his sandals, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. I'm not even fit to touch his feet. Like, we're not just talking about a teacher and I'm like a student. We're talking about someone just completely higher and above me. And they would have understood that. And so, I mean, he's just saying, look, it's not about me. There's one who comes after me who it's about. And he continues and says this. This all happened um, at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this whole idea of Jesus being that, that that sacrificial lamb, this is the second allusion to it. In John uh, 1, verse 14, the, the structure, the language there is God's one and only son, and it really ties back to Abraham and Isaac. And if you remember the story, Abraham has to take Isaac up, his one and only son, and he's going to sacrifice him to God. When he gets there, God says, no, 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 I provide the sacrifice. And it points forward to this time with Christ. And so here's the second time in just the first chapter where we get this allusion from, from the gospel writer here that Jesus is that one who is sent to be the one and only, the one who, um, who God provided to be the sacrifice, the Lamb. So John the Baptist says this, who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, this is fascinating to me, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now what John the Baptist is saying is in the Old Testament, you see a lot of instances where the Holy Spirit comes and and visits somebody or or the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody. But the prophecies about the one that was going to come from God were that the Holy Spirit would remain with him, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's this word that John uses to say, this person, I saw the Spirit like a dove. If you ever want to know why the dove symbol is, is used a lot in Christianity, it's used for the, to symbolize the Holy Spirit here. And the Holy Spirit comes and remains with Christ. And that was the sign to John the Baptist, who's working it out here and doesn't really know exactly who the guy is. He's kind of been told, hey, you might have an idea, but you're not going to know until you see this sign. And the sign comes and remains. The Holy Spirit remains. This is the one sent from God. And John now knows, and he says, I have seen with my eyes, and I testify that this is the Son of God. Okay, so what does all that mean? It simply means this. Um, there was a forerunner to the Son of God who came to us who had seen God, knew God, and was of a totally different level of authority than any of us humans. That's what it means. It's historical narrative. There's not a whole lot here on what it means. Um, We sometimes get our language wrong when we sit in Bible studies and we're like, well, what does it mean to you? It has one meaning, (laughs) It can't have a hundred different meanings. It has a hundred different applications. But it has one meaning. Does that make sense? We've got to get our language right because if we're going to really seek to understand what God would say to us through Scripture, we've got to position ourselves right. And Scripture has the meaning for which it was written, but it has application in every generation, in the, in the 900s, in the 1500s, in the 1700s, in... The year 2009, it applies and it's relevant with the meaning that it has. Does that make sense? So, here's a couple things that, that really this week meant a lot to me in terms of application. First one was just, just this Jesus had a forerunner. Um, if, if Jesus was like a chef on one of those cooking shows, um, he had somebody come in and set up the ingredients. He had a helper lay the groundwork for what he was going to do. So what's the big deal to that? Uh, It means that he stands, his ministry in some sense stands on the shoulders of John the Baptist's very human ministry. It's really interesting, right? So God comes down, and instead of just saying, I've got this, I don't need the help of any of you silly humans, Um, I'll do it myself. He doesn't say that. God comes and takes this thing where it's handed off to him and then runs this leg of the relay race. John ran this leg of the relay race. It's really fascinating to me. Um, Why didn't God just do it all himself? Why didn't God, if, if it needed to be prepared for him to take it, why didn't God also come and handle it all himself? And then you would have had a son of God, laying the groundwork for this son of God, then you'd have, like, two God-mans, and then you couldn't get this whole thing of one of them being less than the other one because they'd both be God-man and they'd be of the same worth, and it just wouldn't work, one of them being less than the other. And, and I'm only talking, like, two people <laughs> right now. Um, me and, like, these two junior hires. We're in our own little world. Um, what am I saying? Uh, um, what I'm saying is this. Let me give you an illustration. Back in the Middle Ages, around the 1200s, the Christian scholars, because philosophy was frowned on, and if you started thinking about ideas too much, you'd be killed. So they just talked a lot about really trivial religious things. And they would talk about things like, can God create a rock so big that God can't move it? And they would talk about things like, you know, um, Thomas Aquinas would talk about things like, does... His hair grow in heaven, you know? And then later on, um, down the road, it was the one you've probably heard before, like, how many angels can be on the the head of a needle? You know, and you're like, (laughs) really? Is that what we're talking about? Um, But the answer to that question, can God create a rock so big that God can't move it, is real simple, because the idea is this. You're putting a, a trap out there that God's supposed to be omnipotent, which means he can do anything. Well, can God do this? And the answer to that is real simple. Um, this is logically incoherent. Creating a rock um, as an irresistible force crea- in creation, creating an immovable object, and it's a, it's a category fallacy. It, it's logically incoherent. It'd be like saying, can God make a, a round circle? Wait, um, can God make a round square or a square circle? Sorry, that was redundant. But it's like, uh, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? It's like, can God make a square circle? And it's logically incoherent. And the answer to kind of these little games they used to play back then was simply this. Look, God's omnipotence, his power, is limited by logic and consistency. God is omnipotent within the bounds of consistency and logic. So that, that's a good thing because when God says... Um, I cannot lie, we know that he cannot lie. Because there's not this irrational thing going on out there where he can both not lie and lie all at the same time. Does that make sense? So God's power is limited by the rules of logic. Okay. So an irresistible force can't also make an immovable object its category fallacy. Why does that matter? Well, not only is God limited by logic in His omnipotence, but in creating the world, human beings, free, rational creatures made in His image. He, in some sense, has limited Himself to work through us. God works through men and women who choose to allow themselves to be worked through by an almighty God. God didn't just choose to create robots, and then write on the sky what he wanted, and they would just go and do it, okay? We know that God doesn't just write everything on the sky with one of those planes, okay? God created free rational creatures, and he works through free rational creatures. And Jesus comes, and he picks up the baton from a very human, earthly ministry. What John the Baptist did that was very just human flowered into one of the most, the most amazing, divine, and miraculous time in God's story of this world. Well, why is that cool? What's cool about it is um, there's an application for you and me here. It says to me as a pastor um, that I'm supposed to speak as speaking the very words of God. And on one hand, that's really freaky because you know, I get a you know, if I don't do a good job of it, I hear it, you know, because you guys know that I shouldn't be saying things that are wrong or untrue or, or whatever. And so I'm supposed to speak truth to the best of my ability, and and it's freaky and it's difficult and it's hard and and it's this high bar and and ah, what's the cool part about it though? The cool part about it is in my very human, limited, you know, whatever messed up mind, doing the best I can, right? In my human thing, trying to speak the words of God, God can take that and flower it into one or some of the most great, amazing, divine moments for people or for me or for what he's trying to do in this world. What I do and then hand over to God, God chooses to take and do something much greater with. So if you set up at a church on a Sunday morning, you're a set-up crew member and you're wondering, How in the world does this relate to anything? You've got to understand, we do these human things and then God takes them and and it turns into something. You who are tutoring elementary students after school and giving of your time that way, God can take that. This is the way God has limited himself, He works through the things that we begin and initiate, and flowers them into miraculous and divine things. When you encourage someone, anything we talk about, the things that God has commanded us to do, when you do those human things, God can and will take those and turn them into something beyond what you could imagine. John the Baptist was a human like you and I, and he just went out and preached it, and that set the table for the Son of God to come and do His ministry. We've got to somehow get excited about this because when you're talking to your neighbor about your church or when you're talking to the person at work about God or when you're looking at your kids and you're like, man, I'm butchering this whole thing, but I'm trying to be a good parent and do this. When we're doing these things, these, these religious things or these things that God asks of us, we have to have this awesome like respect for what God does out of what we begin. It's the way he has created things. He limits himself in some ways to where he works through or continues things that we began. God doesn't always do everything by himself. He tacks on to stuff we do. So what's cool about John's example in this, to me what's really cool about it is, uh, is he knew his place. So if you'll turn back there again. John knew his place. He says, um, I'm not the Messiah. He's greater than me. uh, In John 3.29, I think we actually have it on the screen. um, John 3.29, he even says this. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. I'm the best man at the wedding, says John. And my role is to be here and to get everything going, and I stand there, and then all of a sudden, when this ceremony begins, I'm done. My role, my value, my worth, it has come to an end. It's complete, but that's my joy. Um, What John is saying here is, God gave me a dead-end job. I had a finite lifespan to it. He gave me a dead-end job. When I got to it, it's over. It's a dead-end job. We act like the things that we're working on will last for centuries and will become the greatest things in the world. That's why we're investing in them. We wouldn't be investing in them if they were just dead-end things, just for a time, and then it's over. We, we don't want to do that. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, there's a cool little passage that says, David... Fulfilled his purpose in his generation, and then he died. He did his job, and then he died. And so not only does God give us dead-end jobs, he gives us dead-end lives. At the end of your life, you will die. So we get, as the humans, in what God is doing a story, we get dead-end jobs, and we ultimately have a dead-end life, and that's our part. We play a role on a team in a thing that is ultimately driving at what God wants it to drive at. That's really hard for us, and we play subtle games with this. One of the things that I think my generation is doing that is so subtle and yet so destructive is this. Um, I think the, the phrase of the rallying Christ should be, I want to help change the world. Every Christian should, should have this cry in them. I want to, to help play my part and change the world. Bring about what God wants to ha- have happen in this world. What my generation is, has slowly and subtly done is change that. I want to help change the world to this. I want to change the world. And do you see the difference? difference is this. What is the focus of I want to help change the world? The focus is changing the world. When my generation gets a hold of it and says, I want to change the world, what's the focus? Focus is I. And it's not about my part. It's about God's plan. It's not about my part. I'm smaller. I'm not even fit to tie Jesus' shoes or, or what God's doing next or the divinity of, uh, of, of His plans, the, 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 just the glory. It's not about me. It's about me doing my part. And so when we say, I want to change the world, we're saying, I want out of my role, and I want to be the hero of the story. And it's like the the, the team, the, the football team, or whatever it is, where they don't value the goal high enough, winning the Super Bowl or being a team, so that everyone degenerates down into individuals only out for their own glory. And so there must be a really big God out there. We need God to be a really big God. If we're going to lay down our life and say, you know what, I am going to be a servant who does my part, even if it's a dead-end job. I put all this time and energy to get to one point and then just like a best man, I'm done. Unless there's like a bridesmaid that's really cute and then it continues, right? When the church started, Antioch started, I was watching a documentary called The Grizzly Man. And this guy was going to Alaska in the summers and, um, is a demon in that clock. Um. Okay, so this guy was going to Alaska in the summers, and he was like living with the grizzlies, <laughs> um, and then filming himself. And you watch like five minutes, of, and, you, and you immediately realize there's something wrong with this guy. Um, so for like, I think it was three summers, you know, uh, three or five summers, he goes and he lives with the grizzlies, and, you know, gets up close to him, and he feels like he's the protector of the grizzlies, and all this other stuff. And then eventually... He gets eaten by a grizzly, right? And you're watching this whole documentary that's made out of the footage he shot and all this. And there's one part where they're at, like, kind of this little mini airfield, like the Bend airfield, and they're talking to a good old Alaska boy, you know, who's there, you know, with the grease ball cap on and stuff, and, and he's like, well, he got what he had coming to him, you know, and, <coughs> and they're like, yeah, keep interviewing him. And the, the deal was, after he got ate by the grizzly, you know, the park service went up there, and shot the grizzly, they cut it open and they, they retrieved the guy. Um, and so this good old boy from Alaska at the airfield is being interviewed. And he's like, yeah. And when they came and they flew in, they, they put the big bag over there that had all his body parts, you know. And, and, um, and I was watching that and just thinking, this is really, it's not funny. This is really interesting, this story, okay. Um, but here's, here's the idea. This was my thought. It's like, just because you have all the parts of a body, doesn't mean you have a body. Just because you can draw a circle around it and say, within this circle, we have all the parts of a body, doesn't mean that you have a body. Okay? The body parts need to be put together <laughs> in such a way, and there needs to be life kind of breathed into those body parts, and then you have a body. And, then, I mean, I, you know, at the time, I remember we were planting the church, and I was like, man, there's a real application here to church. It's not just about getting a bunch of people in the room and drawing a circle around it and saying, church, because we have a lot of body parts. But these parts, these people, you and the person sitting next to you, You have to be connected and put into relationship and and be tied together. And then the Holy Spirit needs to to be here, breathing life into this thing. And then we have a body and a church. But not only that, and, and kind of the way it goes with what I'm talking about here with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying, not only am I a part of the body, I'm willing to do my part. I'm willing to submit to the whole and do my little part that contributes to the whole. It says in Ephesians 4 that this whole thing grows together, uh, grows up in love underneath Christ as every ligament and thing just kind of connects and and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, you have a dead-end job that God has for you. He's trying to sign you up today um, to a wonderful piece of His plan that is finite. But you get to be a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is Christ's presence right now on this earth, living out this kingdom call. The church of God is the body of Christ that lives out Christ's ministry To the poor, to the oppressed, to the spiritually dry that are desperately in need of hearing from God. We are getting to live out this call and be a part of this story. God has a dead-end job for you in your dead-end life, but it's a part of his grand story, and it's it's an amazing, wonderful, marvelous thing, and we need to get on board. And the reason we don't get on board is the last point. The reason we don't get on board is because we're all asking that question. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? If God would just tell me what His will is for my life, then I would do my part, and I would do it gladly and live it out. But as it is, I've been been wandering around for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and I don't know what God's will is for my life. And as soon as He lets me know, then I'll do it. Listen to what John says here, which blows my mind. This was the, like, you know, I used to be a radical skeptic, and I would read in this, and I'd be like, what's going on here? Jesus coming from God, being God, and, you know, and I I would just, everything was skeptically minded. But what I love about the Gospels is how human and real it is. So here's the, the guy setting the table for the cook, who's related to Jesus, six months older, and they're like cousins. They've grown up together. And so the story, the good Christian way, should be, right? I mean, they were talking about this, and they're like 10. Hey, Jesus, how about I really, like, call some people out when I'm going, and then you can come along, and you can call them, you know, you fry them. And, and it should be really, you know, you, you kind of like the good Christian Sunday school story is that this is all mapped out, right? Listen to what John says in verse 31, uh, starting verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven... As a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen this and now I testify to it. What blows my mind is that John is being obedient to God in a fog. In a fog doesn't have complete, clear understanding. He's just accepting this call in a fog and saying, I'll go live out, put on animal clothes, eat locusts, preach it to everybody, not have any friends. I'll do all that, even though I don't know where it's going to connect. I don't know who I'm handing the baton off to. I don't have absolute certainty with that. Yet he does his part without complete clarity because obedience precedes understanding obedience precedes clarity. And so he obeys and does what he knows, and then one day he gets the clarity and he's able to hand off that baton. Why does that matter? Because you know what? It is very human that you're sitting there today going, I don't know the baton handoff. I don't know the end of the story. I don't know why God created me, what the the unique little purposes he has for my life. I can't see it clearly, so I'm stuck. And then we wait and we ask and we want and we desire. And inside us, we even have feelings of insecurity and lack of value because I don't know how I fit in. And the deal here is we need to do what we know, even when we have things that we don't know. That's what's called living by faith. Living by faith is walking forward and doing what you know, even though you have questions that remain. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of things you know you're supposed to be doing. And as you do those, the story will unfold. I um, had a time after we got married, a, a great family friend that married Tamar and I uh, moved to Portland. And uh, something was a little off in the relationship, and, and I was confused about some things. And so, about a year into our marriage, and this friend is in Portland. Um, I finally decided that the biblical thing to do was to fly up and talk to him directly. So Tamara and I agreed, and we put a a ticket to Portland on a credit card because we didn't have the money. And I called him up and I just said, "Hey, if I fly in on Friday, can you pick me up? I'll fly back out on Saturday. I just want to hang." Um, he said, "Sure." You know. And so we put this credit uh, ticket on credit card. I flew up on a Friday. We hung out that night, and I just said, hey, I I just got some questions. I don't understand some things. Come to find out, it's just a misunderstanding on my part. Um, Great friend. He's done tons for me um, and loves my wife and I, and I flew back on Saturday. That friend was the person who got me to Bend and connected me with the job that got me up here. He was the person that then launched us into a church plant, put together the church plant council of Jeff Vanderselt, Rick McKinley, and and, uh, Bill Clem, who initially gave advice and spoke into this church? Um, and so this week I was in Baltimore with some world Relief next stuff, and I, it was just amazing, and maybe next week we'll share some of it. But I, on the plane, I was retracing all the cool things that God has done, and, and here's what I realized: If I hadn't have obeyed Scripture and gone and talked to this person directly, I would have never got to bend. Antioch Church would have never been planted this world relief next thing that I think has the power to change, I mean, those things would have never happened. So John shows us that even in the midst of confusion and lack of clarity with lots of questions, you do what you know. You obey God and trust that out of this human stuff you're doing, something's going to flower that's going to be remarkable. And so you've got to forgive somebody. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to take serious your call to be a dad or to be a, 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 a wife or a mother. You've got to take serious your call to be a Christian that God has gifted you to serve in this church. You're to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. You, you already know those things. And if you don't know the whole end story, that's okay because you know these pieces. And yeah, it's foggy and there's a lot of questions, but you do what you know. The righteous will live by faith. Why? Why? Because obedience precedes understanding. The righteous will live by faith. Why? Because we trust that out of what we do, God can take those loaves of bread and multiply them out and do something remarkable with our very human, very natural, very whatever lives and actions and motives and everything else. You are a human, but God has limited himself and chosen to build on what we do. You get to be a part of the body of Christ with your dead-end job and work in this world to the glory of God. And it's exciting and it's worth it because you, every single one of you, me included, us, we get to help change the world. Father, uh, we... We come every week, and if we don't commit this to you, it's just in vain. If, if the builder doesn't commit and trust and involve you in what he does, the builder labors in vain. And we don't want this just to be another community human thing. We want it to be divinely inspired. We want your presence to be here. We want this, there to be life in this church to where when people come in, they look around and say, man, there's something different here. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've been made to be a part of this team, and and I've been searching for it. And here's where I need to be with these people doing my part, helping them change the world. And Father, unless you are part of that, it will not happen. Human effort, our works are nothing if you're not a part of this. And so we just commit this church to you. I commit the college to you. Commit world relief next to you in missions and local things. Father, all of this, if it's not being done to your glory, is a waste of time. Please, just guide us, correct us when we need to be corrected, and uh, just give us the joy that comes from knowing that what we're doing truly is what you'd have us do. That we really are bringing a smile to your face, because we're trying to do our part, knowing that you're going to work through us, in Christ's name.